You're listening to Why We Do What We Do. All right, this is Abraham. And Ryan O, welcome to Why We Do What We Do, right, your favorite friendly consumable podcast about psychology. And stuff. <laughs> and other stuff. And so, being skeptical and, and science. That's right. So we'll start off right away by saying that if you are interested in supporting the show, if you like this episode, if you like previous episodes, if you would like to help us keep doing this thing, then uh, please head over to patreon.com. We are going to be uploading live recordings of us doing these episodes. Um, well, not live. I mean, there will just be recordings of us doing these episodes with video, I guess. You can pretend they're live. You can pretend. Yeah, sure. Um, yeah. You can also. And then. Uh, uh, we also will sometimes release uh, episodes with a little bit longer content go out to Patreon supporters. And uh, we're working out some uh, – we also do some promo videos for uh, some of our Patreon supporters. We're working out some other stuff that might make it sort of – what do they, they call it? Grease the wheel? Is that what it is? Sweeten the pot? Yeah, sure. Okay. We're going to make it more awesome, more value, more more, more everything, yeah. hopefully. And then if you can't do that then or you don't want to, which is fine, um, then always leaving us a good review helps us uh, show up at – as a recommendation for people. So that helps people find us and listen to us. And then if you don't want to do that either, then um, you can at least tell somebody to say like, Hey, this is this really good podcast that I like and you should like it too. And yes, get a few people. We're listening. Telling, telling people is like one of the biggest ways you can help out sharing some sort of comment tag and social media, whatever it is. Get the word out. That would be awesome. And hey, as important as anything else here. Yeah, if if you do that and you like tweet us a a screenshot of that or something, then Ryan will send you some stickers. High five! <laughs> I need an address too. But yeah, I got plenty of stickers to send out. I'm enrolling you in that. Just you know, that's cool. Okay. Yeah. Uh, and then finally, uh, you if you subscribe, then that also shows up as the number of subscribers we have. That helps us sort of keep track of how many people are listening. So that's also a way you can help us out. Awesome. All right. So today we have a very awesome, exciting episode. Yeah. I have two more pieces of things to cover before we start. Oh, sorry, listeners. Very short. teasing. Very short. First one is Happy New Year. This came out just after the new year for all the countries that follow the Gregorian calendar. Um, and the United States is one of those. And so it'll be Happy New Year when this episode is released. And the second thing is that this is going to be the final episode in which Miranda is a producer. Uh, she's been with us for about a year and a half and has been um, one of the most valuable members of the entire team. And hopefully we won't just turn into a poop ball when she's gone. But um, this, all that's to say that Miranda's been great. And we are sad to see her go. And she'll still be sort of around and helping out periodically and might be back a little bit down the road. But for the time being, she is going to be doing some life things. And so we wish her the best and we will miss her. Yes. And that's not to say that we won't be in touch frequently. But yeah, <laughs> yeah. she's conquering some other things. Uh, congrats, Miranda. She's got a lot of cool things down the road for her. So Yeah, this is a happy goodbye. Um, yes. It's not a goodbye. It's see you later yeah happy right? to see you later you're right yeah okay um right. fantastic well and i would like to just start ryan by saying i like that you corrected and and phrased that more appropriately and <laughs> <laughs> i like you like that yep i think you tried to soften it a little bit i think your contributions so far have been uh, really helpful and valuable in this per current episode and uh i like your hat 
and <laughs> thank you very much. I think you're a good it's dude. It's new. Yeah. Okay. And, oh. and I where's I appreciate you recording with me today. Okay, that's three. And that was five. And oh, was it? Yep. I was counting. <laughs> so so what's what's next? Um, you know, if you I think that you could even improve your game even more by drinking more coffee than you currently do. Let me just take a giant swig. <sighs> so all of Thanks for that, man. Misophonia people out there who just <laughs> made them shiver. <laughs> <laughs> so so, so today we are talking about something. Maybe you've put your finger on what it is. Yeah, maybe. The uh, we're calling it the magic number, and partially because other people have called this the number. magic ratio is how it's been referred to. But the magic number, I thought, had a nice ring to it. You know. Yes. So the idea here is that there is a a perfect. I'm using that in air quotes. Ratio for corrective positive statements um, that should be be going on out there. And typically, can I give it away? Give it away, give it away now. It's typically one corrective to five positive. Right. Is is the sweet spot. And we're going to dive into the psychology, why that is um, today. And sort of how it works and all of that. And so, uh, yeah, around the 1970s, uh, this the, the primary mover here, his name was Dr. Gottman. And he was working at the time with someone whose name was Levinson. And um, as I said, in the 1970s, what they were doing is they were interviewing these couples and they were trying to predict whether their marriages would succeed or fail. And they started conducting these longitudinal studies. I believe it was 1972 specifically. And they were purporting or at least claiming that their predictions were 90 to 92% accurate um, up to four to six years later. Yeah, this was four to six years after they had observed them, them predicting whether or not there was going to be like a successful marriage or a divorce in the uh, future of this couple. Right. So let's go ahead and, and dig into the background of this whole idea of the the five positives to one negative or five positives to one corrective and and talk about sort of what has like where this started and where it came about now we already mentioned that they they began doing this longitudinal research in the 1970s but they didn't actually begin publishing studies until 1992 and the first model was just this post hoc analysis where they were sort of looking at statistically these interviews that they had done and their their analysis accurately discriminated successful marriages with Again, this is this post hoc analysis, ninety four percent accuracy, which is pretty high. That's that's really that's, good. Th- yeah, that's something you build an empire off of. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Now, subsequent models were designed to be more predictive, or supposed to, um, I guess, be more inclusive and account for more things. And so, uh, those ones that weren't just those po- post hoc analyses, um, but were supposed to um, use those statistics to model the outcomes, um, their accuracies hovered anywhere between about eighty-one and ninety percent accuracy um, on average for those studies that had been published. This might be too early, but did they look across different uh, cultures? When they were doing this, Ooh, that's a great like, question. Is this something that might have inherently been a result of something in our culture? Um, I didn't specifically find if they talked about that, which probably means that they didn't actually look into it. But um, I'm not sure. That's a really great question. A very okay. important one. So, 
let's keep diving down here. So this, the studies would interview couples about their history, their current relationship, and their philosophies about marriage. Right. And, and the, he would code these, right, as like either positive or negative sort of statements. Yeah, and what's important about that too is that part of that coding system was not just what was said, but also the tone in which it was said as well as the sort of non-vocal expressions that come along with what is said, such as eye contact, sighing, physical touching, eye rolling, and then any other emotional behaviors that were either sort of on the spectrum more toward angry or on the spectrum more toward affectionate. And if you're new around here, this is something that Abraham and I get really excited about when you start to break down and look at a lot of different observable things. Right. Um, because it gives us a, a way to start pulling apart and asking more questions, understanding like what's really going on here. Yeah. Um, it, at least if you're more observable, like they're, they're hinting at here. Yeah, exactly. And so he, he didn't just make up these sort of uh, behaviors that were like, well, if they're rolling their eyes, that's going to be negative. And I, you know, I suppose there's some amount of intuitiveness there, but he actually, um, he developed a lot, some of his coding system. Um, it was influenced by another psychologist whose name was Paul Ekman, maybe Aikman. I think it's Ekman though. Um, and, looks like Ekman. Yeah. And so Ekman did a lot of research on body language as sort of emotional communication. And that's about as in depth as I plan to talk about him here. Really just the important part to know that the the system by which his coding was developed was built on a foundation of research that had already been done. So he was, you know, trying to maintain adherence to the, I guess, the the data and research that had already been done up to this point. Nice. And then my understanding is he took that and he turned it into some statistical model where he could then predict the outcomes like we were talking about before of the 90 to 94% of people who were going to, you know, be together or not later down the road. Yeah, exactly. And so once we get to the criticisms, that whole term prediction is going to become important because there are some of the criticisms revolve around calling it a prediction, but we'll, we'll get to that one later. But it's important to note that that's essentially the premise here is that this model would look at these interactions and would then predict. And the most common variable that was looked at inside of this was that five to one ratio. So Let's just break down then how the idea of a five to one ratio is supposed to work. Part of the philosophy here is that five to one is, is kind of supposed to be a balance or at least tipped in favor of things that are more positive rather than negative. And so you might argue correctly that five to one is not balanced because you have five times of one thing on one side of this and only one of the other on the other side. It's true. It's not a one to one correspondence there. But Gottman more or less suggested that negative communications can be so powerful, effective, long-lasting, and in, I guess invasive in a way that there needs to be more positives to counteract the effectiveness of that negative or corrective interaction. Yeah. Anecdotally, I was listening to some uh, NBA coaches and other major league coaches talking about the ratio yeah. and the the general consensus that I found, um, one of them was Phil, the old, uh, what is his last name? Phil, the old LA Lakers coach during the Kobe Shaq era. He was talking about how um, <laughs> consistently throughout his career, it was the one feedback that he would give that would just like sit and players would stew on and like they would remember. Yeah. So it was something he consistently was trying to focus on, like how do you deliver the perfect corrective feedback. And a lot of that was um, people saying that they followed this magic rule. 
that that was interesting. Yeah, and I mean, we've mentioned before that part of the problem with using punishers and aversives is that it's not that they don't work, it's that they work so well at creating that relationship to that negative thing. And like yeah. there might be an evolutionary reason to be more sensitive to avoiding aversive things um, that it, that's maybe one total speculative reason that that we are. Um, but yeah, like we do tend to cling to um, or recognize more carefully, I think the that that one bad thing, the negative thing, the corrective thing that sort of stands out and we'll stew on that. You know, we we do at my work evals um, twice a year. And on those ones, you always get a mix of sort of positive and, and negative feedback. And I, for my, I, I myself noticed that I tend to get pretty focused on even the slightest criticism and not that I get like mad or defensive, but really more like, wow, I am the worst is sort of like, yeah. even if it's a mild sort of thing. Um, so yeah, this, uh, those, those negatives can be really impactful. Now, I mentioned this idea of this being sort of a balanced thing, but that being said, I don't think that that Gottman or his colleagues would suggest that too many positives are a bad thing. I think it's maybe better to characterize it as at least a five to one ratio, not as much of balance, but sort of a net gain of positives. And yes. that will depend a little bit on how effective that negative is and how effective those positives are, but at least you're leaning the, you're tipping the scale more toward those positives than the negatives. Agreed. Two things here. First of all, Phil Jackson, that was a coach. I'm embarrassed that it took me that long to remember. <laughs> Second thing, the positive-negative distinction, like how hard or easy is it for people to really know like what is a, constitutes a positive versus a negative? Because we know here, we've talked a lot about how not one thing can like function in the same way for everybody, yeah. right? So how do they handle that? Well, like I said, in his coding system, he did have sort of a more or less black and white to, uh, topography based description of, as far as I could tell of what constitutes something that's a positive versus a negative interaction. Um, but I think that the idea is less about, I guess less about the exact, the words that are said, but, but those contextually important features of does this have a, is the, is the nature of this interaction or the statement that's supposed to be positive? Is this uh, going to facilitate this relationship or harm this relationship? Is this going to result in increased behavior or decreased behavior? I think that's supposed to be the idea around this, but I do believe that okay. um, in his original coding system, and even the one that still exists, it is more based on just when you say this, this is a negative. When you say it like this, this is a negative. When you say this, it's a positive and so on. So I think in that way, that's another critique or criticism to apply to this, that yeah. it's it may not be based on the effect of that actual statement. Because I could say something like, um, I could I could swear at someone and have that be a positive interaction because for them, the part of our relationship is a sort of jabbing, you know, we, we sort of give each other a hard time and, and that's fun and enjoyable. And if I were to say, Hey man, like I really appreciate you. They'd be like, "What? What's going on? Don't talk to me like that." That's yeah. weird, you know. <laughs> um, and so that, in and of itself, is, or I guess, just going back to the point that it might be missing that as a as a good piece, a good unit of analysis, is understanding those effects as they are. All right. So let's get into some of these examples that we have here. Well, so. Gottman wrote this book that was, of course, a bestseller called Why Marriages Succeed or Fail. And he wrote that, quote, 
Anger only has negative effects in marriage if it is expressed along with criticism or contempt or it is defensive, end quote. He noted that being dismissive, critical, defensive, and using negative body language were all common examples or sort of generally common categories of examples of types of responses that were powerful, powerfully effective, I guess, negative interactions. All right, so he also listed things that were effective positive interactions as well. So things like intentional appreciation, being interested in, you know, I assume what someone was saying or what they were describing to you. Yeah, that's sort of the active listening component, the making eye, to- eye contact and saying, uh-huh, when they say something, that sort of thing. Uh-huh. <laughs> Thanks. Demonstrating that other uh, that the other person matters, finding opportunities for agreement. Um, that one's important too and they talk about that specifically with respect to when you're in a fight and you can sort of point out hey like i understand that like we both agree that this was a bad thing and or Mm -hmm. you know we both agree that we wanted this outcome so like we can at least find some common ground some common footing that sort of thing awesome showing affection making jokes empathizing and accepting your partner's perspective that goes back to the episode we did on perspective taking yeah we've covered a lot of topics yeah, man. A lot of, yeah there's a lot of parallels here yeah so one of the big recommendations is to when we're talking about this idea of five to one and, and the effectiveness of this is to is to take action to be the one who starts doing this so if you're in a relationship and you feel like one of you or both of you are unhappy or things aren't aren't going well but you would like them to go well then you can start you can sort of take the precedent here, even if it doesn't feel fair, even if you think that you shouldn't have to be responsible, that's fine. You're probably right that you shouldn't. But if you just try it and see if you can sort of turn the tide into a more positive direction, you're more likely, at least based on this research, based on, on his um, on his claims and these predictions, you're more likely to experience this more fulfilling, rich and happier uh, relationship. Yeah, I think there's uh, an interesting thing here to focus on. You can look at your positive interactions or you can look at your negative interactions, right? Like, do I want to increase the positives and decrease the negatives? Do I just want to focus on one? Because it kind of comes down to this like self-management, self-awareness. True. um, Like self-experiment in a way, right? Of like, which ones can you focus on? And I think the negative ones, my gut tells me it'd be like, the most effective to start with right because it should mathematically start to decrease uh, or increase your ratio a lot faster you know i did i didn't see anything that talked about sort of an order um and some of the videos that i watched that we'll get to later when we talk about where this has been applied as you mentioned this has been applied to sports they really only use them in the moment to give feedback. So if there was corrective feedback to be given, then it was given. Um, if there was praise to be given, it was given. So it was more of like, you know, catch the things that you like and praise those. Find instances of appreciation, even if it feels menial or small. And then like also catch opportunities for corrective feedback. Um, but like try and see as many opportunities as you can for those positives. So I'm not sure that there is an order effect that there might be, I don't know. But I, I also hear what you're saying that if you you want to end on a good note so if you start with those negatives then you can sort of work on the positives and and end up in a good place 
Well, if like, for example, also, if I was looking at um, trying to make some sort of change immediately in my personal way that I interact with somebody, if I focus on what are the negatives that I'm saying and how much of those really matter, and I could cut some of those back, why then that might give me the most bang for my buck on my ratio. Does that make sense? Yeah. If Yeah. Not more, not just like hitting them up front and providing the negatives first, but um, say I consistently am at a three to one ratio. If I cut out some of my negative comments, that ratio jumps up a lot faster than if I have to add a bunch of different positive ones. So me as a self-management um, perspective, like I would try to focus on my negative ones first because I'd really ask the question, like, do these matter? as much as I think they do. Or am I just kind of nagging and nitpicking things? That makes make sense. Yeah, no, that makes sense. Not that it makes sense empirically. Like well, there's yeah. science behind this. Right. Yeah. Now I also wanted to say, cause you can sort of mention that three to one. I have seen some recommendations that vary anywhere from three to one to five to one. Um, and four to one is very common as well. Now Gottman specifically recommends the five to one ratio, but I think other people have sort of messed around with varying ratios in here. And I think again, that really the purpose is that you have sort of a, a net gain toward positives more than anything. Now, there was one cool thing that I wanted to point out that some people have reported. And again, this isn't necessarily reported in the research, or at least I didn't find it if it was. But what I did see that were that some people have claimed as an outcome of them having adopted the strategy of using a five to one ratio and giving feedback. And I don't want to say trying to control other people's behavior, but when you are in a position where you are asking people to do things specifically, um, and a lot of times this is this is parents, um, sometimes employers, we'll, we'll get to that. Anyway, what they've reported is that in addition to the fact that that relationship feels happier and more fulfilling and, and more, I guess, equal, is that, um, and, oh, and, and less stressed and, and more successful as well, is that the people who start using the five to one start seeing that the people they're using it with start using it back. So for example, <laughs> isn't that cool? I saw, I saw this in classrooms, not with this specific um, five to one rule, but right. with other teaching and strategies yeah, that yeah. we're implementing. Yeah. Yeah. So for example, um, parents who have used it with their kids have noticed that their kids starting using a five to one with their parents and the kids starting using it with their siblings and the kids starting using it with their friends. And so you sort of get this, if you if you're going to be the one to step up and try taking on this idea of five to one, well then the people around you might also start doing it too. Um, and that's like, that's kind of a cool outcome that you get the, um, you don't even have to ask them to do it. You're sitting there thinking, God, you know, I'm the one who's sort of pulling the weight here when, you know, don't, don't I get to get treated with kindness as well? And, um, and one of the outcomes that some people have noticed is, yeah, that's that what, that's what happens when you do this. Yeah. Now, another one that I think is probably going to be pretty enticing to some people is that it's been reported that because when you're using a five to one emphasis is placed on positives because they occur so much more using no, like the word no, telling people no to try and prevent or stop behavior starts becoming actually much more effective. So when parents are their kids are always doing things that are upsetting and they're driving them crazy and they've got all these issues to deal with and they use these, um, they start moving to a five to one. Now when they tell them no, that's in such stark contrast to the way those interactions usually go that it just, it has a lot more punch to it. It's something that, that some people have reported their experience with this. 
and I sort of relate this to this idea of swearing. And although okay. we don't swear on this podcast, um, I personally love it, and I would do it a lot um, given the opportunity. <laughs> but fortunately, same, yeah. <laughs> fortunately, there are people who don't like it, and they they unknowingly, I think really help uh, swearing maintain its effectiveness because if if people were swearing all the time it wouldn't be as effective as it is used sort of sparsely right and so you know i'm always i remember to be thankful to those people who prevent me from swearing so that when i do get to swear it has a lot more punch and i just say to them i'm like you're more meaning yeah i'm like you're really keeping the swearing thing alive and i appreciate that um, you're, you're really, your efforts to get rid of it are making it much more powerful. And that makes me yeah, extremely say, happy. Yeah, it's kind of counterproductive. <laughs> yeah. Uh, it's productive to me. So that's why when I get irritated at being sort of censored in that way, I, I remind myself and that person that they're really actually doing me a solid by, um, by making sure that my swearing remains as effective as it can possibly be. So, um, nice. keep it up. You censors out there, make sure that keep, keep the F word alive. I want to make sure that thing lives forever. Um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So I had one specific story I wanted to tell with this whole idea of sort of parents with their kids. And this is one where this family, I can't remember if this kid was a foster kid or adopted or I don't remember how, for whatever reason, they were just having a lot of problem behavior with this kid and he was stealing and lying a lot. And what they found, so they obviously had a lot of strategies to try and deal with and manage these behaviors that they were struggling with, with him. And they, one of the things that they incorporated among many was this idea of this five to one. And what happened was because it started to become a safe place for this kid to sort of talk about things, he felt more comfortable opening it up. And I guess just that he was being heard and and has sort of a more receptive audience as he started telling the truth more and he stopped stealing things as much. And it wasn't even that they were directly punishing that type of behavior, but they were, they were creating the context in which he was more likely to contact those positives by doing those good things and avoiding doing those bad things. So I'm just kind of a cool story to talk about some of the, the ways this has been used. All right, we said that we'd get into like where else this has been applied, so let's talk about that. I know one that's really heavily talked about is business and organization levels. Like how do you appropriately provide feedback when it comes to, you know, your people that you're managing or the people that are above you? Right. Have you experienced this yourself? Kind of yes and no. Um, I've never worked at a place where it was sort of institutionally mandated or even requested to generally you adopt a five to one. I have been in places where people valued that sort of approach. And I think they therefore did use it sometimes in their interactions, but yeah, not as not in the sense of like going into a business and doing as an intervention, let's try this and not as I'm working at a place where they're using a lot of five to one that I at least knew about it. Yeah. I've, I had it emphasized to me in various different organizations that I've worked in um, that I should try to do it, but there was no like performance system around making sure that I did. 
Um, and oftentimes the people that said that they valued it wouldn't do it with me, which is disheartening. Yeah. I will say that when I give feedback, I have in my mind the, the ratio of five to one and try and keep it at least that, if not higher, uh, more positive yeah. than, than correctives. And, oh, and I, yeah. I guess it's worth pointing out here that, and we sort of did talk about it this way at the beginning of the episode, but in, in organizations, it's referred to as praise versus criticism. Um, and, le- and not so much positive versus negative. And so there was this cool study that was conducted by, I think it's Heffy or Hefe and Losada in the Journal of American Behavior Science, which is a really cool name for a journal. And what was really cool about this study is their dependent variables. They were looking at financial performance, staff evaluations, and customer satisfaction with respect to comp or organizations, not just company, just organizations that were using um, this five to one ratio. And the highest performing groups had also the highest ratio of praise to corrective statements. So they had about an average of 5.6 to one, a little over the five to one. And then the least well-performing groups had the lowest ratio of praise to corrective statements. It was barely over one to one. And so I, I thought that was particularly astounding that this not only has the effect of having sort of like we like our boss and our boss likes our employees and everybody lives this or works in this harmonious place, but also that customers like this place better and we sell more stuff. Like that's kind of cool. (laughs) A win, 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 win. Yeah. Triple threat. Bam. So there were other factors that were related to high performance, but through a statistical analysis, uh, it showed that the ratio was one of, if not the most prevalent factor in assessing performance. So yeah. this is pretty cool if you're looking for something to like immediately implement, right? right? Like this is something that you will get some sort of bang for your buck if you start implementing. And when we get into some of the criticisms, we'll talk about the fact that these the relationships are complicated. But what is interesting to see here is that running these statistical analyses, it seems to be the case that a really significant factor it sort of clusters around this uh, this one particular factor, which is the ratio of praise to corrective statements. Um, another place this has been applied to is parenting. We mentioned this before. Um, parent training classes, um, behavior management classes, dealing with children with an intellectual disability, um, and getting help and services with those. Um, a lot of a lot of those will bring in this idea of five to one uh, for parenting to help them um, manage their children's behavior. Awesome. Yeah, that's a huge area for. Um couple things like being able to help the world out, but I think a lot of people are looking for feedback on how to uh, quickly increase some of their parenting strategies and techniques. Yeah, and um, specifically with fostering and adopting, um, they they build into their training classes if you're going to be an adoptive parent or a fostering parent that uh, they specifically talk about using five to one ratio to help, I guess, create a supportive environment for those kids who are going into those homes. Nice. Another application... Uh, that I know both of us have somewhat experienced, but someone we brought on this podcast before as well yeah. has pretty pretty extensive experience, as you know. Um, and that's positive behavior supports or positive behavior um, intervention. What is yeah. it? Yeah, intervention and supports. Intervention and supports, yeah. yeah. So a couple of things. Like we've we've done an episode with George Sagai specifically on PBS, right? Yep. If anyone wants to go back and listen to that. June but, of 2018. Uh, yeah, and Lauren was on here, and she has quite an extensive background as well. She was here for the gender, um, gender and identity. Is that what it was? Uh, I think it was gender and sexuality. Yeah, and she works uh, for PBIS. 
Okay, yeah. So there's there's uh this same five to one ratio. I've seen it also as a four to one in PBIS. Yeah. Um, in different places, like we were talking about, like it kind of changes a bit. But this is something that's implemented. I, to my understanding, like this is a core part of PBIS. Like this is a a pinnacle to the training and like what should be seen in the classrooms. Yeah, they. As part of their training packet that you can find online, and I put a link to this in the show notes, it specifically says for, uh, when you're doing teacher training for managing classroom behavior to use a five to one ratio of praise to corrective statements. And, I mean, generally speaking, pretty much anywhere where you have a human relationship, you can more or less predict that this ratio was probably is more or less likely to be predictive of how happy and successful that relationship would be. And again, as we mentioned before, it's complicated and there are a lot of variables, but this does seem to be a pretty important one and it probably is not going to do harm to, to try and use it. And the other area application we kind of talked about was sports coaching. So uh, I found that a lot of the professional sports had some sort of video typically as part of a larger class that they just shared a little snippet online and and they focused on this five to one ratio um, or the same discussions we're having on like you need to be way outweighing your positives they need to make like really good um you not weighing your negatives with positives yeah sorry <laughs> <laughs> um but they need to be like tailored to the individual too like you yeah. can't use the same sort of positive statements for everybody it doesn't work that right way. yeah they they say specifically that the praise statements should be behavior specific not just good job but in sports like great job having your hips oriented this way that was a really good pass that you just did excellent mm -hmm. shot or throw i don't know anything about yeah. sports <laughs> sports sports ball good job moving thing um, to from point A to point B. <laughs> yeah. Phil Jackson, that LA coach that I was talking about, he was saying that as you get into the professionals, it gets, uh, he's experienced like it's a lower ratio because you're so like, there's so much more focus, right. On like what needs to get better always since it's a full fledged business at that point. Yeah. Um, but he was constantly internally battling that himself on like, how do I make sure that I'm still getting the highest ratio I can, yeah. even though I've got a lot more pressure, you know, financially and, um, and whatnot to produce uh, wins for the team, the organization. That makes sense. Um, I did find a video that I put a link to in the show notes that was, uh, it was like a younger kids soccer coach, I think something like that. And uh, she talks about the five to one ratio in there and was showing what this looks like sort of in practice during a, uh, a practice game where they, you know, they're all on the same team and, and they're practicing against one another and she is given examples of this is what you did next time do it more like this so that you'll have more success getting the ball to this person or she'll she'll you know give her praise statements of great job passing great job dribbling that was perfect how you pivoted that way um, excellent job keeping your hips oriented the right way uh, good job you know moving across you know whatever it was that she was saying and so uh, kind of a cool thing and so you know probably this has been applied to a lot more places than we've even listed here but these are at least some of the big ones that i found when i was you know putting together some of the notes for this i love it so let's dive into the criticisms yeah so first and this one's probably pretty obvious as we've already mentioned on here, relationships are complicated and they have a lot of variables and factors that are related to why they fail or succeed. 
And there are a lot of reasons that people get divorced. And you could certainly argue that it's naive to think that just having a five to one ratio is always the primary driving factor. You might also be able to point to a relationship that definitely doesn't have a five to one ratio and see a relationship that's happy and successful. Yeah, so we've continually talked about on this podcast that it is never one thing that is going to make any sort of behavioral pattern successful and perfect. Um, When you're adding social situations where you have two people interacting, now you're talking about does it work for both people under those circumstances. There's the context, right? And there's different, um, I would say, pressures that you definitely experience in relationships and might impact this, um, whether that's financial or um any sort of tragic events and things like that can totally disrupt and alter things so yes it's very naive to think it's just one but it's one to i would say be really aware of and and focus on if you're trying to i would say especially focus on yourself like understand your own behavior yeah um, and how you're interacting with others yeah no i think that's an important part of it and i mean on the other hand it's not unreasonable to expect that a relationship would feel just generally richer more fulfilling and supportive and therefore is probably going to be last longer and be more successful than a relationship that has, uh, you know, a very little praise or recognition or maybe even is skewed in the opposite direction. You know, I definitely have seen, um, I think we've mentioned on here, the Hartman and Hall research that was done in, nope, that wasn't it. That is a totally different study. <laughs> who who did the, uh, it was Risley, um, who did the like talking to kids and, the Morton. Oh uh, yeah. Hart and Risley. Um, I think it was Hart and Risley. So the title of the New York times article, if you want to look it up is called the power of talking to your baby, uh, by Tina Rosenberg. Um, but she was the one that was highlighting that it was this research by, uh, Hart and Risley out of the university of Kansas. And they published a book in 1995 called meaningful differences in everyday experience of young American children. Yeah. Uh, there's a summary linked there and it's pretty, pretty crazy just how impactful talking to your children can be right like the difference in a in like 200 words today a day or something like that starts to add up to millions of different um interactions that they end up having or words that they hear by the time they're like three four five right no and it was like thousands per hour but what they found too was that not only did did they have in these i I mean they, they called them lower ses but i think what was more important there is that they um, they were looking at predictive factors of um, these kids who are likely to be successful in education and afterward and that sort of thing. And they also saw that in those kids who were less likely to be successful, not only were they talked to just less often, but the the ratio of those praise to corrective statements was completely flipped. Like sometimes five, it was like one to five, like one positive to every five negative and even higher one to 10, you know, yeah. like really, really skewed in the opposite direction. And that these had some of the worst possible outcomes. So, you know, there's also the fact that like if eight or nine out of 10 correctly predicted relationships, that's fairly compelling for this sort of thing. Um, and I, you know, just like, let's give a practical example that if you have a boss that you only ever see when you do something wrong versus sort of the opposite where you always see when you do something right, but who will, you know, give you feedback on things when you've done them wrong, but you're, they're always there when you do something right. Which of those people do you want to be around? Like if the boss only shows up when you do something wrong, then your emotional reaction to that boss is fear. 
another example is like a roommate that's always nagging you. So you only ever see your roommate when they're complaining about something and they're, they're sort of always on your case about things versus a roommate who's always listening to you and supportive of you and offering to help you with things and, um, and says nice things to you. And they might still ask you, Hey, like, could you please do this, whatever chore? Um, but if they're skewed more toward, I see this person, I'm more likely to have a positive reaction than your relationship with that person is very different than the one who's just my experience of you is you nagging me and driving me crazy. Yeah. No, yeah. <laughs> no one wants to be around that. And a lot of people can probably relate to that experience, Yeah, <laughs> which is why I used it. So a uh, second criticism, one author argued that overfitting the model to match the data without cross validating the model can lead to these sort of spurious conclusions or I guess, conclusions that are maybe like a false positive. And so he said specifically, quote, overfitting can cause extreme overinflation of predictive powers, especially when oversampling extreme groups and small samples are used, as was the case with Gottman and colleagues 1998. There were only 60 couples for the prediction analysis. And nearly all of the other divorce prediction studies, published studies that find extraordinary initial predictive results may aid us in improving models of risk by identifying important risk factors. Nonetheless, dissemination of quote-unquote predictive power results in the popular medium must await supportive data on sensitivity, specificity, and predictive value when the predictive equation is applied to independent samples. By recognizing both the value and limitations of predictive studies, professionals and the public alike will be served best, end quote. All right, Dig. So this is really worth pointing out because the criticisms kind of focusing on this quote predictive component like is that 90 to 94 percent something that we can truly say happens consistently across cultures across different um i'd say time frames right different types of couples well when most of his um, data have been applied to the data after the fact so he he looked at the the ratio looked at the outcome of divorce versus um remains together and then he applied the model to fit those data and so it wasn't necessarily not actually predicting as much as it was describing that pattern, if that makes sense. Yes. Um, yeah. And just general note, like describing things versus predicting them, very big differences here, right? Yeah. I mean, I think <laughs> when you describe and predict, you're essentially doing what you're talking about when you predict is what you see when you describe. So like... I predict that the sun will rise tomorrow is based on the description of the fact that I have seen the sunrise every day for my entire life and that yeah. I have read that it has done so all through all of time. Or rather, the earth will turn toward the sun is more accurate. <laughs> but like that's whenever you I don't know if it's really worth going into here, but yeah, whenever you are doing a description, a prediction is a description, but doing so based off of like, this is what we think is going to happen in the future. But I don't know. It's just, it's probably a discussion for another time. I think the concerns that that particular author raised were not necessarily relevant or, or, and they don't really counter recommend the idea of a five to one ratio. Um, with any of the other circumstances to which it's been applied and not, it doesn't even really counter recommend uh, using five to one um, as a tool in marriage. And so what I mean by that is 
you know, it, it, the, he raises this with respect to marriage and divorce, but this has also been applied to businesses and parenting and um, adopting and classrooms and that sort of thing and sports coaching. And so it, it doesn't really address that. And I also don't think that he would say like, well, don't use a five to one in marriage. I think really just the point that he's raising is that this doesn't really we don't know how predictive this actually is of their outcome and that there are other factors we need to be looking at it as well. And, you know, that's a fair point. Um, but the, really the point I think is that uh, relationships benefit when you have that five to one ratio in there. Dig. All right. And one last criticism here is another journalist, Lori Abraham. <laughs> Funny. It's Abraham. Yeah, no relation. Uh, <laughs> yeah. At all um, said, and I'm going to quote this one. Uh, what Gottman did wasn't really, a prediction of the future, but a formula built after the couple's outcomes were already known. This isn't to say that developing such formulas isn't a valuable and indeed a critical first step in being able to make a prediction. The next step, however, one absolutely required by the scientific method, is to apply your equation to a fresh sample to see whether it actually works. That is especially necessary with small data slices, such as the 57 couples, because patterns that appear important are more likely to be mere flukes, but Gottman never did that, end quote. And I think that's relative or relevant or related to, however you want to say it, to the uh, the other author's criticism as well, that they're sort of saying this isn't really predictive and there are other things to consider. And so, yeah, I mean, sure, that's totally fair. And I think it still doesn't mean don't use five to one. Um, it still doesn't mean this isn't a relevant factor. It's just saying that maybe he's overselling it a bit and maybe he is, I don't know, but it still seems like the, the benefits out here outweigh the positives, at least five to one. Yes. All <laughs> right. So let's, let's bring this back together. What's a, a wrap up conclusion? Well, I think calling five to one magic or stating that it alone will save every or even most marriages is, is probably overselling it a bit. It seems to be a useful strategy to create a more positive environment, um, one that's more supportive, one, one that's more fulfilling, probably feels happier. And honestly, we may as well use all the tools that we have within reason. And if this is a tool that works, then I think it's a recommended tool to use. Yeah, and we know that it's uh, probably better to think of it as at least a five-to-one ratio. Right. You should probably focus on trying to get the biggest uh, number you can up front there as possible. We've seen numbers of, what is it, five-to-one, seven-to-one, nine-to-one, twelve-to-one, or what I've seen in the sure. past. Um, Just tip the scale heavily so, toward positives. Yep. yep. Um, and what about, let's, let's summarize the skepticism real quick. Yeah, I mean, so there is some healthy skepticism, which is great. All scientific fields need this. And hopefully this will facilitate models that include other important variables and facilitate a better understanding of how relationships can be developed, maintained, and improved over time. Like that might be one important variable. There might be others. And maybe this will show up that maybe it's better to think of it at least four to one. Maybe it's better to think of it as at least seven to one, or maybe it's better to think of it in combination with something else. You know, either way, uh, it's appreciated that some people are approaching this with that level of skepticism. And uh, that just is going to push the research where it needs to go. Yeah. And I would say that the other cautionary point is don't totally eliminate that corrective communication. Yeah, right? definitely not. That still provides a really critical, important role um, so if you're attempting to eliminate all instances of a disagreement, corrective feedback or critiques, it might actually damage the potential of that relationship um, and what you're intending to do. Yeah, there. I mean, there is a lot of value in providing corrective feedback, constructive feedback. And generally, like this is 
this is how you could be even better than you already are, you know, type of approach to things. Um, and so, you know, people really do value being, you know, learning how to be better at things most of the time. And so if you deprive them of that, then you're really missing an opportunity to be, to contribute to their development and their success. Nevertheless, the five to one positive to negative is probably a good general rule to help maintain a peaceful and productive relationship. Um, you just got to try it out in your own context, right? Yeah, absolutely. So that pretty much wraps up the five to one positive to negative uh, magic ratio or feedback uh, ratio. A quick shout out to Stefan from Sweden. He sent us some pretty cool articles on dog personality um, for a follow episode that we're we're talking about figuring out how to how to knock out here soon. So thank you so much. Man. Yeah, yeah, we did an episode on dog personalities and breed specific legislation, and he sent us some cool resources that we are already in the works planning um, a follow up episode to that. And so uh, appreciate that. And um, if you want to learn more about the five to one ratio, then feel free to check out any of the links that will be in the show notes. That's where we got some of our sources, some additional things to consider, um, stuff like that. And then, of course, if you just Google it, you'll find a whole bunch of answers and stuff as well. And then there's plenty of research out there. Cool. All right. This is uh, Ryan O. This is Abraham. We are out. You've been listening to Why We Do What We Do. Why We Do What We Do is supported in part by our amazing patrons. Thank you. If you like what you heard, consider becoming a patron by heading to patreon.com slash podcast. You can also rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts or share this episode with your friends. If you have any comments or questions, we'd love to hear from you. Find us at podcast on your favorite social media platforms. You can learn more about this and other episodes by going to www.podcast.com. There, you'll find links as well as detailed and shareable show notes. Why We Do What We Do is researched and produced by Abraham, Ryan O, Shane, and Miranda. Artwork and logo design by Andrew Pollock at nogdesigns.com. Video and production assistance from Tyler Brassier with music courtesy of Justin Greenhouse. Thanks for listening, and we hope you have an awesome day. Unique New York, unique New York, unique New York, unique New York. Ow now brown cow, ow now brown cow, ow now brown cow. Ow, ow. Uh.